Listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting live from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Musqueam territory here in Vancouver. I am your host, Saira Unju, and I have so much pre-recorded stuff for you today. It's crazy. Three of them are interviews, and one of them is a review that Lua did of the Polygon Gallery. And um, honestly, Without saying too much, I'm just going to get right into them because we have only one hour and we have so much to listen to. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to start off with an interview and then we'll go into uh, Lua's review and then we'll do the other two interviews after that. So first up, we have uh, my interview with Anthony Lee, who is a filmmaker and interdisciplinary artist from Hong Kong. He is the director of Selfie, written by Christine Quintana, and it will be presented at the Festival of Live Digital Art um, between June 9th and 11th. So it's opening tomorrow and it will be live streamed. You can catch it. Uh, you can watch it at home. You can watch it literally anywhere you will like. <laughs> and it was really nice speaking to Anthony. And I hope, I hope you enjoy this interview. After the interview, I will be back and then, you know, leave you again. <laughs> to listen to more pre-recorded stuff. Okay, enjoy. Hello, Anthony. Thank you for so much for joining me today. I am excited to talk to you about Selfie. So can you start us off by telling what Selfie is about? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yes, I, of course. Uh, so Selfie is a story about three teenage best friends navigating the aftermath of unconsensual sex. So the play really explores the theme of consent, um, impacts of social media, and friendship. The play was written by Christine Quintana, Vancouver-based playwright. And um, I think it was premiered in 2018 at Tremors Festival with Rumble Theater. And it, it has been touring all around the world and has been winning a lot of awards since then. This iteration of Selfie is going to be adapting uh, the play on a digital platform. So then instead of seeing this play on a stage, you will be seeing this on a live stream. And the reason why we're doing it is because the play has so much influences on social media and, and the presence of each characters. So that we thought that it might be a really cool um, experiment to, to play with social media and seeing the perspective through these lenses mm -hmm. and i read a quote from you that goes how can we create a medium that serves the content out of choice and not convenience and i want to know more about your thoughts on this you know the medium mixes cinema and theater and talking about choosing it rather than using it out of convenience yeah so so when the pandemic started um I saw that there was a lot of theater because they can't do any in-person showings. So then they slowly trans transitioning into, into live streams, just like, um, just like what broadcasters would do or, or churches would, would do. Um, so then a lot of these mediums or, or contents become something to be viewed on a 16 by nine boxes, which is essentially like that has a whole lot to do with like, how to tell a story on a two-dimensional surface rather than how to tell a story on a stage. And over the course of the last two to three years, I've done quite a bit of um, facilitation from a stage to a screen. And, and I've noticed that a, a lot of our platform or how we are presenting the show is, is limited at the time because of technology and, and where we were at with, with our pandemic uh, situation. So I really wanted to create something that that that's not a live stream because we are stuck in the pandemic, but this is a live stream because it has to be a live stream. We have to think about why we are doing it as a live stream as a choice rather than, oh, we're doing it as a live stream 
because because we 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 can't do in person stuff. Mm. And so you mentioned that this play has been presented on stage before, and this is the first time that it's being live streamed, right? Mm -hmm. Did you have difficulty when it comes to directing because it's the first time this is going to be live streamed, so you didn't really have any examples to you know use as like a ladder? Yeah. So actually, this might overlap with some of your later questions, but um, we actually had uh, an excerpt presentation of of this live stream play in 2020 as a part of a directing class that I took at SFU. So with that, like when this is in like late 2020, when when I think like the second or third wave just hit it, and we're all like, okay, nobody can go to school, and we're all rehearsing the show online. So I'm like, okay, well, I, I can barely rehearse in person. Uh, how am I going to handle something that's online? So so then we did like a series of of uh, rehearsals on Skype, and then turns out some of them actually actually like some of the the process actually worked quite well, uh, and they transferred from an in person to online medium quite quite well because it's pretty much the same. Um, so then when we did that showing, it was. It was obviously a very low budget of the of the show, and then what it was an excerpt, but we were able to use a lot of resources out of nothing, and we were using a lot of platforms that was already existing. For example, we used Twitch as our streaming platform because it offered like a comment section on the side, and having comment uh, within the story was a part of the show. So I was like, okay. That's that's what we were going for. So that really like solved a lot of problem by using what's already been there because that's something that oh the audience they are used to, and also that's something that the performers are used to. Um, instead of creating a new interface or a new platform out of nothing. That's that's very interesting. Also, really smart to use Twitch for something that needed comments. So how did you get involved in this project? Yeah. So again, this project started as a part of the directing class, uh, a class. Yeah. And my mentor at the time, Adrian Wong, who is like kind of like my role model to digital theater. I, and I didn't know that this medium existed before. And she has given me uh, a lot of encouragement to direct a play and to go for the vision that I wanted. And then the excerpt happened in late 2020. And then she was also encouraging me to to look for other presenting opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. In 2021, I wrote a grant with Rice and Beans Theater. And along with my co-creator, Andy Loy, uh, we got the Digital Now grant from Canada Councils for the Arts. And here we are in 2020 uh, being presented by FODA, which is Adrian Wong is one of the co-creators of this, of this festival. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, now we are part of this festival presentation being supported by Rice and Beans Theatre and Canada Councils for the Arts. That's so exciting. And so this show is a, a voyeuristic window into the lives of three teenage characters. And when you put it like that, to some people, it might sound boring. So do you have, did you have any problems about this when you were directing and bringing the show to life? I wonder if we do often see people's lives in a voyeuristic way at all in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe that is something that people would find interesting. But but I would I would argue that at the heart of this play, it is a story about consent, how to hold a conversation on such a complicated topic. When I was first directing this play, I thought, oh, I don't really think I had this conversation of consent or a, a really clear concepts of it as a team. And and I wonder if other people feel the same or is it just because I am from Hong Kong and and I didn't never I never had that education. And turns out my friends who grew up here and people who worked on this show, they also had a really blurry idea of 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 what it is. Yeah. That's why I think that's why I think it is such a under discussed uh, subject and I think like it, this is not something that that's just meant for oh you know if you're a teen you should watch this it, it it's not just for teens there as you said so for example I am 24 right now mm -hmm. and I moved to Canada when I was 19 and honestly I've learned about consent 
more in the past five years than I have in my 19 years of life back home. I feel like it's definitely not just for teens, yeah. Yeah, and I think what's what's really special about this play is that it doesn't offer an answer to what a consent is, but really just very honestly shows what these three characters are going through and, and how they are struggling to navigate through these conversations and and having to take responsibility of their actions Mm -hmm. yeah well yeah when i first read what the play was about i definitely did not think that it was carrying and starting such a important conversation (laughs) so have you ever been involved in a project that was within the festival of live digital art or something similar so In the past, I have only been working in digital presentations as a designer or or as a consultant. So this is really my first time working on on a digital project as a director. And honestly, Mm -hmm. it's my first ever theater directing project professionally. That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You went to school for for film. I moved to Canada in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I went to Simon Fraser University um, for film. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any experience during school directing? Yeah. During film school, I did a whole bunch of like just student projects. And I'm I was very lucky that I was able to like work on a bunch of student project as as the creative lead mm-hmm. so that it, it really trained my ability and capacity to to take lead on a project and and to not be afraid to to voice out because like for ESL like myself it's so hard to like have a voice in the room and mm-hmm. and to deliver and communicate your vision clearly so yeah. and so over the course of the last two years in my film school um, I was more involved in the theater area of my school of my faculty so i took a lot of acting and and theater classes and one of them is this directing class i took with adrian wong and that's that's how all this came about how does the the experience of directing on student projects versus uh directing selfie as like a professional now compare i can talk a little bit about the difference between the excerpt yes which was a student project and mm-hmm. the selfie now so i think something that i noticed lately was that when i was working on the student project i was doing like five jobs at the same time i was the producer i was the production manager i was the lighting designer even though the lighting designer being like telling the actors to like turn the lamp a little bit away from them <laughs> Because everything was happening in their house, so I can't do anything about it. And, and you know, obviously there was such a smaller team and smaller time for rehearsal. And that caused a lot of stress for everybody. Now, in this iteration of Selfie, of course, there's still a lot of stress. But I think that we're being able to create a space so that everyone has each other to rely on. So, like, nobody is working on a whole lot of things at the same time. And I feel like I have more capacity on focusing on directing as well and making sure that everyone in the team is being, being taken care of. Um, mm-hmm. We were able to hire a producer and a production manager who has been doing an amazing job keeping the production on track and just taking care of the designer's needs. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And before we go, is there anything you'd like to tell the audience about Selfie, about this production? Yeah. So I would say that Selfie is inspired by a whole subgenre of screen capture films, such as Searching. Mm-hmm face-to-face or profile. Um, These are all films that are told through the perspective of digital devices. And while these films are made as pre-recorded cinema experience, Mm -hmm. uh, Selfie is an attempt to to combine theater and film and to create something that, that has a similar aesthetic as these films, but also contains the essence of theater, it meaning being life. Yeah, it's... It's very interesting because I feel like live streaming theater really started becoming a thing during COVID lockdown. 
as you mentioned before and doing this intentionally and creating something to be presented online that people can watch literally anywhere it's very exciting so when can people see selfie so it opens on the 9th of june and it's being digitally streamed in real time on the 9th of June, Thursday, mm -hmm. and it's being presented by Festival of Life Digital Arts. If you're looking for tickets, you can always go to folda.ca, F-O-L-D-A dot C-A to get tickets. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for talking to me about Selfie. I am excited to check it out myself, and I hope it's everything that you wish it to be while you're your professional directoral debut. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I'm also turning 24 this year, so. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, so so it's, uh, I don't know, it's like that I don't know what I'm doing face. <laughs> hey, none of us do. It's fine. <laughs> um, now, that's what I call facts. None of us know what we're doing, and that is more than okay. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anthony Lee. Up next, we're gonna listen to Lua's review of the new exhibition that opened at the Polygon Gallery. Um, let me pull up the the deets really quickly. <laughs> so the Polygon, if you don't know, is located in North Vancouver, and it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gallery. Uh, their entrance is by donation, so... It is really accessible. So the, the show that opened is called Ghosts of the Machine. It opened on June 3rd and it's running until August 14th. That's That was a weird way to say August. <laughs> it's running until August 14th. So Lua um, went to see the show and she will be doing her review. And right after uh, Lua's review of Ghosts of the Machine, we will actually be going into another interview. Also, oh my god, my mouse is... <laughs> so I brought this mouse from on sale from staples and i can tell why it was on sale i got it working now we're good we're chill <laughs> so right after lua's review we're gonna listen to my interview with chris lamb who is the associate artistic director of ensemble theater and ensemble theater is having a summer festival so within the summer festival they are showcasing two plays one of them is marjorie prime and the other one is passover you can um go see these plays as as well as the other things that the ensemble theater is doing for the festival um from june 15th to july 2nd at the waterfront theater in granville island and we're gonna you know we're gonna hear more about it uh, in the interview, although before we go into Lua's review and my interview, we're going to quickly go into an ad and PSA break, and then um, you will listen to the wonderful review and interviews right after. A Tribe Called Red is the Hallucination, with their new record, One More Saturday Night, featuring Javier Mighty, Tanya Tagak, and more, out now. If you attended a federal Indian day school, now is your time to make your claim. If you experience harm at your school, you may be eligible to receive a check for compensation. Remember, you need to make your claim before July 13, 2022. See if your school is on the list and get free legal help. Start at IndianDaySchools.com or call 1-844-539-3815. Claim what's yours. Hey everyone, this is Lua, and it's finally summer, kind of. You wouldn't know if you're in Vancouver, but uh, it's summer, which means a lot of new exhibitions and a lot of different galleries are opening up across town. And one of these is Ghosts of the Machine, which is the new exhibition that is running until August 14th, 2022 at the Polygon Gallery on the North Shore. 
The Polygon is a gallery focused on photography, video, and new media. So I don't usually do like traditional painting or anything like that, although there are a few exceptions. And this exhibition in particular is about uh, the interaction of technology and the natural world. So there are seven different artists, each one with um, one or two different pieces. And as you walk through the exhibition, you see different explorations of how us and our internet avatars interact with both the digital and the non-digital world. And not gonna lie, this exhibit was very exciting for me, very exciting to see, and it might be my absolute favorite polygon exhibit, at least conceptually. It's definitely not my favorite exhibition aesthetically, although it is a very cool aesthetic, but it might be my favorite exhibition conceptually. The thought process of a lot of these pieces is so interesting, and the approach that these different artists took in these pieces is so fun and different and just such a really cool and weird exploration of certain limitations of the virtual world versus the, the, the non-virtual world that is just really like a trip. To go into this exhibit is really just a trip. <laughs> and something I want to note before I go on and talk a little bit about, about the more specific pieces you'll find walking into this exhibit is that um, Ghosts of the Machine is part of the Polygon Gallery's exhibition series New Perspectives, revealing diverse perspectives, untold stories, and new voices in visual arts, which means that every single artist chosen for this uh, program is either part of a minority group or is a voice that we don't necessarily hear as often. Yeah, and I think that's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool series. Okay. So as I mentioned previously, this uh, exhibition does kind of like talk about the encounter of virtual and non-virtual world. And it takes on that exploration through the figures of avatars. Not Avatar the movie, nor Avatar the Last Airbender. Avatars is in like the little figurines you have in computer games and whatnot to represent yourself. And in some ways, um, having an avatar is a safe way to express your gender, nonconformity, or to express yourself in so many different ways in a relatively safe environment, right? It's a way to be a little bit more, or perhaps less, or perhaps different. Who knows? Everyone t approaches their avatar a little bit differently. And... Essentially, what these artists are doing are presenting new ecologies uh, that are forming with the connection of a lie of our lives to the online. And with that idea of the avatar, the first piece that artist, not artist, viewers encounter as they enter the exhibit is one of the two pieces by artist by an artist named Squawinati. She is a Mohawk artist, and a lot of her pieces really do address the history, the future, and change from her perspective as a Mohawk woman in the real world, quote-unquote, and as a cyberpunk avatar. And what does that mean to navigate these two, these, these two spaces? So a lot of her art is actually um, portraying XOX, which is Squanati's avatar. And this avatar is created in Second Life, which is a an online world in which players can interact as avatar in a parallel virtual existence. And she has been part of this software since the very beginning. And which is really interesting to me, especially with her piece um, called Generations of Place, sorry, Generations of Play, uh, which traces back the origins of the avatar with one image of the of an, her avatar as a husk doll, her avatar as a Barbie doll, and finally her avatar as this 3D digital avatar as we kind of know it is that it seems to ask uh she seems to ask is my avatar the idealized version of me or am i the idealized version of her so who is who and who where are the limitations and i think that is such an interesting approach with as we transition into our visual worlds <laughs> so much more every day um, yes, a lot of the pieces in this gallery, in this exhibition in particular, 
are dealing with more of like a gamified version of the avatar but isn't our online presence as a whole kind of like an avatar like i know for a fact that my instagram version of myself is very different than what my everyday person version of myself is and so putting in creating an exhibition of this this sort and putting the avatar or the idea of the avatar at its center i think brings in a lot of really interesting questions about the neutral uh, the nature of uh reality and where do we draw the line is the virtual less real yeah that was a lot of big questions but that is also far from the only thing you'll see at the exhibit in the interest of time i'm only going to be talking about two more pieces which were my personal favorite um actually three more uh, i can't help myself they were they're all so good uh three more pieces that were my personal favorites that i thought were really really interesting one of them is by an artist named santiago tamayo soler who is colombian he's obviously part of the latinx community but he is based in montreal and he works primarily with video and for this piece he essentially created a video game an imagined video game where these players consciousness have been uploaded to um, this server because the earth has ended and now their consciousness are going to be used to repopulate the earth later on very weird stuff like truly very weird very hard to comprehend at first but watching this little movie right so it's as if someone is playing the game but you kind of just watch it as a movie as it plays is fascinating um he takes on this retro aesthetic uh so very like 90s video game style like very low low density graphics but it becomes such an interesting and somehow familiar for us that did play those games that were released in the 90s i also realized i didn't say the name of the piece the name of the piece is retornar so to return to return uh back home is kind of the idea it's like it's going to they're going to return to earth at some point and another interesting aspect of this piece that is brought up as you watch the film is the creation of these queer avatars and the creation of a space for queer voices to interact and discuss things um outside of their again quote unquote usual marginalized spaces so essentially creating a safe space virtually and what does that mean even another piece that is completely unrelated in a sense but at the same time also related because you know everything kind of relates to each other uh is the piece uh called Ziggy and the Starfish by Anne Duke Jordan who is a South Korean artist currently living and working in Berlin and this piece caught my attention because it is a not only a video piece but it's also a structural piece i guess uh it cre- it's created it's a corner of the it's in the corner of the gallery space and it has a lot of like plushies and like a cute little seating area very comfy they have these like shrimp um pillows that i'm absolutely obsessed with if the polygon starts selling them after the exhibit i will buy one because i'm absolutely obsessed with them um but outside of the actual installation element of this piece it was really um it's a video piece where uh you see the sexual behaviors of deep sea creatures and everything looks very alien and uh to me it kind of spoke to the idea that we have this idea we have a preconceived idea of what is alien what is different what is outside and then we look at these creatures that are very much real very much in nature very much in or on earth and we realize that the true weirdness the true alien like things are much closer to what we already know than something that is entirely imagined in outer space obviously in choosing to um showcase sexual be- animal sexual behaviors even though as humans we don't really see that as sexual i guess i don't know if you, if you're a marine biologist biologist yeah cool good for you 
but essentially it's exploring this idea of ecology and where do we exist um where when you know we're on the verge of ecological collapse and are our deep sea creatures continuing to reproduce or not or how do we sustain that environment how do you continue to sustain that environment and i want to talk about one more piece by sis weeks uh who is a squamish artist uh and it is a very cool augmented reality experience where they actually have live plants in the gallery that are going to be replanted after the gallery um this exhibition closes but uh, I'm running out of time because there's so many things on the show today. Uh, so I just want to say, please go check it out. The Ghost in the Machine is such a cool exhibit. Like I said, probably one of my favorites in a really long time. I mean, a really long time. The last one was also amazing. But probably one of my favorites conceptually. And there is so much more to it than the things I talked about. And you only get to, you know, get to know it if you go there. And the best part, the Polygon is by donation entry, so you can pay what you can for your tickets, which is also odd, awesome for a budget-friendly option um, for those of us who are, you know, on a budget. Okay, uh, hope to you'll hear from me next week, and have a great summer, everyone! Well, hello, Chris. Thank you for joining me today. Before we get into all of my questions, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little about your job as an associate artistic director at the Ensemble Theater? Yeah, so my name is Chris Lamb, and I am a theater professional who has been uh, working in Vancouver for about 10 years, and I, I'm an actor, I'm a director, I sometimes write. I also run my own theater company, which is uh, West Moon Theater, and I started working with ensemble theater company back in I think it was 2017 so I've been associated with them for quite some time I've um, been in many of their shows and then uh, at some point I really wanted to get more involved with just the just the sort of the general ethos and, and programming uh, the artistic programming with the company and so I performed with them, I've directed for them, and mm -hmm. now I am uh, currently co-sharing the Associate Artistic Director position with um, my good colleague, Kelsey Forsyth. Mm -hmm. And so Ensemble Theatre is having a summer festival that are featuring two plays. One of them is Marjorie Prime and the other one is Passover. Can you tell us a little about what these plays are about, what the audience can expect from them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can just probably just give a, a general kind of premise for the plays. I don't want to give away too much, but I think mm -hmm. um, with Marjorie Prime, it's sort of a speculative fiction sort of piece where the idea is we focus on characters, and these characters are involved with what they call primes, which are essentially these sort of like artificial versions of people that they've lost in the past. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's a kind of almost like a it's kind of like a like an artificial piece of memory. So these characters who obviously as time uh, sort of progresses they they sort of deal with their their grief and their everyday kind of struggles and sort of coping by using the artificial kind of memory which are the primes. Um, and then Passover is essentially a tale about these two black men who are sort of waiting on the street corner and they sort of kind of philosophize on, you know, life and obviously being black in America. And then they sort of encounter some very interesting characters who may pose as threats. And yeah, so those are essentially the two plays. Mm -hmm. And so this year... We're only doing the two plays, and uh, we're at our new location, yeah. which is uh, the Waterfront Theater, which is on Granville Island. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in addition to these uh, two plays, you're also hosting a series of film screenings, I read, and engagement events like Sunday readings. Is there any specific one that you're personally looking forward to can you tell us more about these you know it's interesting i haven't i didn't really actually do the i, I haven't worked intimately with Tarek, who's the, the artistic director mm -hmm. on, on the brunches um i think Tarek specifically has programmed them but essentially with um ensemble theater company Tarek really loves to have sort of supplementary 
kind of event mm -hmm. that sort of either complements or reinforces the themes or either just the kind of the same energy as the plays that are running in repertory. So we've got the, the brunches, which has happened in the past before, which is essentially kind of like reading, you know, other text-based pieces. And I believe the actors who are also in their own respective shows will be doing some of those new material or just material that's part of the brunches. And then this year, I believe this is new, but um, there are supplementary film screenings. So there is um, Her, the Spike Jones film, which is going to be in tandem with um, Marjorie Prime. And then there is Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, which is in, in tandem with Passover. Mm -hmm. So that's new, which is exciting, actually, because yeah. I think these two plays definitely, um, these two films definitely are kind of like complementary pieces to the two to the two plays. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also like a really um, interesting opportunity to just have this different engagement, which is like the bridge between theater and film, because I yeah. think Ensemble Theater Company is very much uh, cross-media, so they do love I mean, they are primarily theater-based, but I think film and cinema are, is definitely also very much something that we're excited about and something that we want to connect um, in terms of having just in, in tandem with the theater. Um, and then there's the readings, of course. So it, it just it, there seems to be a really interesting crossbreed of media that we're kind of trying to engage audiences, and especially with the the new location, we'll see how how we're going to engage the, mm -hmm. the new audiences on the island. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be great. I feel like all of these extra events, the additional content really helps engage the audience with more both theater in general and also what the company does within the season because they're like, oh, I remember they did this event. I should check out this new play that they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's great. I So you mentioned in the beginning that you are also the artistic director of a West Moon Theatre here in Vancouver. I wanted to ask, I'm assuming, you know, working with organizing a festival is quite different than organizing a normal season. So how does your work compare in Westmoon Theatre and with the Summer Festival in Ensemble Theatre? Any components that are similar that helps you in both fields? Well, with my own theatre company and just based on, you know, my schedule too, it's, I, I, I don't tend to um, program as much. And also because my company is rather smaller and, and, you know, we don't have the same sort of resources and the same kind of um, manpower to sort of uh, put on a full season. Mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, when we get the chance and when we, whenever we have the funding and the resources, we can. I, I, I would love to mm -hmm. put on at least at least one show or something like that. And I find that because I, I also produce a lot, you know, while I'm either directing or or just supervising or something, uh, I think it's it's probably less intense. But, you know, with Ensemble Theatre Company, you know, the, the repertory festival is, you know, a very kind of different kind of beast altogether. Mm -hmm. And obviously with Ensemble, you know, they have a little bit more resources and there has been... Um, more funding um, this year. We've got more funding opportunities. And also the move to Granville Island is is going to be very interesting because, you know, this time we're really putting in a bit more money to sort of engage with just the different atmosphere and um, also working with just some different things. Um, mm -hmm. But I find with Ensemble Theatre Company this year, um, especially the work that I was involved with, was sort of um, a, a lot of producing and just sort of front-loading a lot of the work, a lot of pre-production work, um, a lot of preliminary kind of things just to sort of help get the festival going. And because my schedule is a little crazy, like mm -hmm. I am also currently acting in something right now, and it literally runs, you know, concurrently with the production calendar of the festival, mm -hmm. I told Tarek that I'll definitely help you up until a certain point. Mm -hmm. I'll be there to support you, but I, I feel like at some point I definitely will definitely be stepping away for a bit. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of just getting everything sort of ready for rehearsal and then kind of just sort of helping prep for their, um, their opening. Yeah, so, when you talk about getting things ready for rehearsals and pre-production, uh, can you explain further what that entails? So, you know, it was sort of 
securing a new venue. It was securing a new rehearsal space. It was making sure that the the rights for the shows were still valid and also, you know, just sort of like in contact with um, new designers. So we were basically sort of um, onboarding some new designers, some administrative staff, and just sort of getting them all up to speed and sort of just kind of creating a general checklist of what we need to do so that we can be ready once they start going to rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And then this year we also engaged with a a marketing firm. We're basically in conversation with them about, you know, what is the branding like this time around? Uh, What is the the mandate and what is overall kind of spirit of what we're trying to do this year? Mm -hmm. Obviously with the two shows sort of generating some ideas of like, how can we market the show and why we're doing the shows? And yeah, and then of course, checking in with our directors and, you know, seeing how the casting was going and making sure ready set pieces and have them ready for rehearsal because they really wanted to actually just work on the the physical set as soon as they can because Mm -hmm. the rehearsal schedule is fairly compressed. So, yeah, so it's... It's a, it's a, it's just a, like a lot of stuff like that and yeah, yeah so it's marketing it's yeah so it's marketing it's it's kind of securing venues it's making sure that the team is all together and communication about um, all that and so yeah, that's yeah, a lot of work <laughs> it is it is yeah I I feel like I only gave you just I don't know like the tip of the iceberg yeah. uh, I I feel like there's a lot of departments going on and definitely mm-hmm. I was doing more administrative stuff and uh, also this year we wanted to rebrand just the, the company logo and just um, rejig the, the website mm-hmm. so we're going in with like revamp approach hoping that we can generate some interest for a new audience we figured if we're going to go to a different location and we're doing these two new plays and also our mandate has slightly changed and our company has slightly been rejigged as well. Mm-hmm. We kind of wanted to come in new, like it's like almost like 2.0 kind of, yeah. you know? Yeah, nice. Well, just to remind the audience, the summer festival is happening June 15th to July 2nd. And you can go see the, the revamped ensemble theater then. And can you remind everyone where people can get tickets or their festival passes for the summer festival? You can definitely just head over to ensembletheatercompany.ca. You can purchase tickets separately for the shows themselves, which I, you can just click under plays and events, and then they'll have the Passover and Marjorie Klein respective pages and there will be a button for tickets and stuff like that. Yeah, thank you so much for for taking time out of your busy schedule today to talk to me. I appreciate it, and thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're very excited, and um, I think it's just, you know, you have Bard and you have Tuts, and mm-hmm. you can also have Ensemble Theatre Company, which, yeah, which is great. The 21st edition of Doxa Documentary Film Festival returns May 5th to 15th, 2020. The 21st edition of Doxa Documentary Film Festival returns May 5th to 15th, 2022. Committed to cultivating curiosity and critical thought, Doxa will present both short and feature films from across Canada and the globe, representing some of the best in documentary cinema. The hybrid in-person online festival will include both live and pre-recorded conversations with filmmakers, as well as some industry-specific events. Visit doxafestival.ca for more details. The Sweetgrass Clan is a volunteer-based coalition that provides safety, security, and essential resources to the most vulnerable members of the downtown Eastside community. In addition to providing food and safety, the Sweetgrass Clan also connects people with advocates for housing, mental health counseling, and drug and alcohol detox. The Sweetgrass Clan is always looking for new volunteers to support the downtown Eastside community and are able to offer volunteers grocery gift cards and bus tickets as honorariums. If you would like to offer your volunteer support to the Sweetgrass Clan, you can reach out via email at abfrontdoor.org or visit abfrontdoor.org.
so i don't know what happened there with the first psa slash ad it glitched a little but that's fine sometimes a little glitch is okay and you know keeps you on your toes <laughs> hope you enjoyed that review that lua did and the interview with chris lamb to end the show we have you guessed it another interview this interview is with the artistic director of ZZ Theater, Cameron McKenzie. He and I talked about their um, first ever national queer and trans playwright unit. So in collaboration with not nine other theater companies across Canada. And I'm not going to speak more of it because Cameron and I do enough of that. So enjoy. <laughs> Hello everyone. Today I have Cameron McKenzie with me to talk about Canada's first ever National Queer and Trans Playwriting Unit. Hello Cameron. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to learn more about this unit and the development program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a great opportunity to talk about our work. Yeah, it's lovely to have you back. So let's get right into it. So ZZ Theatre saw the lack of work created by Canadian queer and trans theatre makers and decided to take a step towards it, you know, towards closing that gap. And uh, you ended up collaborating with nine other theatres and this uh, playwriting unit was born. So first of all, would you like to tell us about what this um, playwriting unit entails and also talk a little about how this collaboration happened? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I wanna, I wanna say, first of all, that of course, playwriting units have happened in Canada before, and certainly they're gonna have, you know, I'm, I'm certain that Buddies and Bad Times, our, our, our uh, oldest queer theater company in, in Canada, um, will have had exclusively queer units, um, you know, certainly back in the day. Um, but I think what, what we're doing with Zoom um, really makes it more accessible on a national scale. You know, nobody has to fly in uh, to Toronto, nobody has to leave their home um, and their, and, you know, their own um, networks to try and um, put themselves up in, you know, Toronto. So, you know, that, that's my little historical disclaimer there. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, certainly again, my other disclaimer is, uh, that there certainly is queer work happening in this country that, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there's no queer work happening. Um, but it is a challenge to find, um, the well-made play that gets emailed to, uh, somebody in somebody's inbox and we see a script and there it is ready for production. Um, the economy as as a whole in Canada, when you when you when you look at the development of new plays, is already a challenge for the most privileged of all of us. Commissioning fees are exorbitantly low. I think you know an average three four thousand dollar commission for what's going to be you know writing a play over you know two sometimes three years um, is abysmal. Now, of course. The writer is not writing full time, and there's all sorts of other things on the go. and And the goal is that the play gets produced, and then the writer gets royalties from the production, and maybe they get published, and maybe then they get a second production, and maybe then they get royalties from further productions. But those are big ifs. And the challenge is that um, certainly there are companies again in the country that are developing queer work, but it's sometimes those plays get stuck in a sort of dramaturgy or development purgatory where, you know, they, they continue to develop and develop and develop and they just get dusty and stale and then they never make it to the stage or they just end up on, you know, the shelf somewhere. And none of that is going to get money or, or sort of national acclaim into those playwrights' uh, lives. Now, when you start factoring in, as I said, like, other intersections of race and gender and ability and you know neurodiversity all of a sudden the ability to take a bunch of time out of your life and uh, write a play um, gets harder and harder and so that's really what we're trying to look at is is those 
intersecting identities that really we need to be hearing from and giving real support to those people. You know, we had been talking about starting a, a unit pre-pandemic for a little while, and we were struggling for about four years to find our main stage show for that year number four. Um, we knew what we had coming down the pipeline for year one, two, and three, and we just could not find year number four. And year number one, I wasn't too stressed about it. And year number two, I was getting a bit anxious. And, you know, we just accidentally had a play fall in our laps. And that was uh, Transcripts Part One, The Women by Paul Lucas. You know, he had reached out to a friend of mine and she had passed him on. And I was like, oh, wow, this could be next year's show. Fantastic. And so that was the play that we uh, co-produced with the Frank Theater, the other queer theater uh, here in town. And I co-directed co it with Faye Nass. And at the time that we were directing, Faye was working on a, on a three-year multi-phase grant. And I think ZZ was about to. Um, and Faye and I were talking about how challenging it is to find scripts, to find, like, where are these scripts that we need to produce? And we're the queer theater company, let alone, you know, the larger sort of more mainstream theater companies that we are all expecting produce queer scripts and a queer intersectional scripts. Like, where, where are these? And, you know, there, there's always that thing of like, oh, well, well, certainly, you know, we before the pandemic, we're focusing very strongly on Vancouver and, and just, you know, the Vancouver ecology, and we weren't looking nationally. But then there's also, you know, the arguments we made that we weren't looking hard enough, or we didn't have the right calls, or we weren't connected to the right communities to really see that. And, and I do feel that that is the work of the producer, is to do that work, is to not just simply put something on Facebook and then hope that we get something and we don't, you know, get it at the end. So this was part of my strategy to really counter that and to say, okay, well, if Faye at the Frank and Cameron at ZZ are having a hard time. Let's chat to some other organizations, not queer and non-queer across the country and see like if they agree that it's a challenge and that, you know, this kind of unit would, would be of interest to them. And then the pandemic hit and those organizations, it started looking like those organizations could be great partners if we were able to do something virtually. You know, we were doing shows on Zoom. Everybody like, hello, we're doing this interview on Zoom. Zoom has opened the world, has opened the country up. And, you know, Canada's like, obviously, we all know Canada's a huge landmass with a quite small population. And then again, you break down into queer and you break down into sort of intersectional queers and you break down into artists who writers, um, we get limited and, you know, smaller and smaller numbers. And so it's that, that classic Canadian kitchen party. Like we shove a bunch of people in the kitchen and the party's hopping, but if we're all spread out, over a venue, the energy doesn't quite have the same sort of connectivity, electricity. So yeah, that was, that was part of this idea that we needed to bring people together across the country. We needed to be able to pay them. And, and of course we took inspiration from CERB once, once you know, that kicked in. How many artists out there were like 2000 a month, luxury. Whereas like, you know, the people who work regular jobs were like, oh, I can't survive on 2000. Like, ah. This is like incredible for us. And, you know, 2000 a month to focus on writing. So you're not working five other jobs to just pay rent. And then you're expected to write a play and have the bandwidth and the brain power and the creative space to write a play. You know, writing is not just the act of putting pen or typing to paper. Like it's sitting and musing and looking out the window and breathing and having a cup of tea and going to see another play, reading a book, reading poetry, doing something physical in community. Like writing is all of that work that happens around and before and during and after the actual pen to paper. So to have the, the space of, the, of your heart and soul and brain to be able to ponder is crucial to the creative process. And now again, full disclosure, I'm married to a playwright, so I am very biased, but I do believe that playwrights are that central linchpin to a production. If you have a, a diverse intersectional playwright, they're going to write diverse intersectional roles. The show then will demand diverse intersectional production team. And all of a sudden we invest in a playwright and it's kind of like this multiplier effect that everybody, the entire community grows. And then you put that play on stage and all of a sudden your audience base grows because they're seeing themselves represented. And there's countless studies that, you know, seeing yourself reflected on stage not only adds to your mental well-being, but not seeing yourself actually is detrimental to your well-being. It's not just like, oh, well, I didn't see myself on stage at the end. It actually takes away from your, yourself. And so we put these plays on stage. We're growing a queer audience base that sees themselves reflected, but we're also growing allies. We're growing cis, het, 
allies who understand and want to support us more. And, you know, I, I keep saying in interviews that I, what I want is finally for queer and trans rights not to be a political um, hammer that, that, that is wielded anytime there's an election. I don't want us to discuss queer and trans rights ever again. I don't want that to ever be in anybody's mind, you know. And the only way that that's ever going to happen is for the population to say, no, this is not something that we need to discuss anymore. And so all of a sudden you invest in, in a playwright, which then invests in an arts community, which then invests in an audience, which then actually ultimately benefits, you know, all of us over the entire country. Yeah, so we were inspired by $2,000 a month to, you know, to write for 10 months and they're not focusing on other things. Now, I would love this thing to, you know, they'd, for them to get a full year. I'd love them, you know, to get, you know, $3,000 a month. Like why, why get livable um, wage when you can get maybe thriving wage? And of course there's various places in the country that cost a lot more than other, other places, but you know, the numbers didn't quite work with what funding opportunities we had out there. And we've done phenomenal work getting the money for this. You know, we have Canada Council for the Arts on board. We've got the incredible folks at TD Bank who are our longtime partners with CZ on board. We've got 100 Gay Men for a Cause. We've got um, a local foundation here in town called the McGrain Pearson Endowment Fund at the Vancouver Foundation. Um, we've got, you know, a, a ton of individual donors that are going to be donating to this thing. We've got a ton of people coming on board because it, Five writers for 10 months at $2,000 a month is 100,000 right there. And, you know, it's, as I said, I'd love more, but this is what, what the numbers are right now. And, and I'm sure once we prove how good this was, we'll get more people coming on for the next one and we can increase those. Um, we're in the middle of the 10 week call for submissions, again, with the notion that it's not good enough just to put it out for a week and say, oh, nobody applied. There's just no trans writers in Canada. We put that out on Facebook and nobody applied. Um, so, you know, we've got 10 weeks. It's a long time. Uh, we've hired the incredible folks at Murray Patterson Marketing Group. We love them to help spread the word on this. We have a producer on board who's, who's managing a matrix, who's making sure that, you know, we're getting the, the, the right applications from, you know, the right folks. So that when all of a sudden we're like, how do we have no women apply to this? We can do some work and we can track that and, and ensure that. Um, you know, we're getting a, a wide cross-section of intersectional identities. So we're in that phase right now. Then the, the 10 organizations, uh, we've got Juan Duck Theater up in uh, Whitehorse, and then of course Zizi and The Frank here in Vancouver. Then we have Outre out of uh, Lethbridge, a little venue company out of there. Then we've got Persephone Theater in Saskatoon, Theater Project Manitoba in Winnipeg, Native Earth in Toronto, Buddies and Bad Times in Toronto, Imago Theater in Montreal, and Neptune Theater in Halifax. So we've got a fairly good cross-section of regions across the country, a cross-section of queer and non-queer companies, a cross-section of larger companies and then smaller companies, but everybody is a producing company. Because the point of this is at the end of this 10-month period, we will read these scripts. We're going to do um, public readings in real time. They're going to be all at the same time. So, you know, we're going to have to pick a time that works for Vancouver and Halifax, but it's going to be at that time, the same time across the country. Imagine that. We're all one country. We can exist in a one shared experience at one time. And we're going to be streaming uh, live to whoever wants to zoom in. And obviously, um, we're going to be promoting it in all these different regions, but it's going to be one shared experience. Saturdays in September in 2023 is when these readings are going to be. Every Saturday, we'll do one reading. There's five Saturdays phew, that, in that September. And then at the end of that, all of the 10 partners have committed to ensuring these plays are put on stage so they don't get left, left in the dust on a, on a shelf somewhere. So maybe, you know, 10 months is still not a lot of time. It's better if the, the artist has been able to focus on writing but it's still not a long time to develop a play. So they likely will need one more development cycle, but that it's not five development cycles. And it's like one development cycle and then on stage in one of our seasons. So between the 10 companies, all five of these plays will be produced. We will make sure they all get on stage. The playwrights we meet weekly in their full unit, along with their dramaturgical support person, their sort of um, you know, for those folks that don't know what a dramaturg is, uh, they're kind of like an editor um, who supports you in, in, in your process. Um, so they'll be meeting one week uh, as a full cohort of, um, with the dramaturgs and um, 
themselves. Yeah, they're the four playwrights. And then they'll meet in the alternating weeks just one-on-one -on -one with their dramaturg. So um, in this way, they are building community. They are, you know, exchanging ideas. And that kind of extends to all, to all of it. You know, like I've had a really fantastic time sitting, chatting to um, building this unit with these other nine organizations. Like it's all about connectivity and, um, and collaboration. Um, so the, yes, they'll be meeting um, every week, one week full, one week one-on-one. -on -one. Um, at the end of the month, we'll be doing open houses uh, where audiences can zoom in. We'll have facilitated talks with the full unit so that audiences can say like, oh, how's that first month of the, of the unit going? And they can talk through challenges or successes. Um, yeah, so a little bit of an artist round table. Each one of these artists will also be offering a community offering to each one of the theaters. So it might be the same artist talk that that one artist gives you know, 10 times to the different organizations, but they will be doing um, these talks throughout, throughout the 10 month writing period. And that I think is it. I think that's as much as my brain can handle from that question. I know I've been talking for a while. Honestly, um, you went through all of my questions in this <laughs> so. <laughs> you tell I've been working on this thing for two years and 